my name is Phil Williams and I would like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. Back in 1969, on a flight from Orkney to Wick, I met and chatted with Brian Harris. Brian, at the time, was editor of what even today is the hugely well-regarded, though sadly long-departed, angling magazine. We were on our way home from the Sea Angling Festival at Kirkwall. Unfortunately, I couldn't afford the flight right through to Manchester and had to take the train south from Wick. But that conversation, while brief, has over time become both a talking point and a cherished memory. For little did I appreciate at the airport and on the short flight that I was chatting to a man whose influence on and contribution to the world of angling journalism would still be recalled favourably and revered some 45 years later. Internet forums regularly resurrect those heady days when angling, which later incorporated creel, was a much-anticipated monthly event, offering a style of information presentation sadly no longer given space in today's publications. Delivered back then by a roll call of names, which themselves are still up there with the magazine title that provided their outlet, under Brian's editorship. Imagine then my pleasure when four and a half decades later I now find myself in the enviable position of being able to link up with the man himself to record a two-part interview, the first instalment of which takes that all-important historical walk down memory lane, followed by the post-angling magazine era, all the way through to 2014. Let's start with angling magazine, its history and your involvement there. Well, I came to angling as a result of a telephone call. When I started into journalism, I was about, about age 18, and I began on the Kent of Sussex Curry, which is my local newspaper, as a junior reporter. I stayed with them for about 12 years, and then left in 1967, when I was in charge of their Wheel to Kent edition. While I was um, working with the Courier, I also wrote a weekly fishing column, which proved very popular under the name of Tom Hook, which was a bit of fit, but uh, it worked. Anyway, this began my career in angling journalism because I had a telephone call from a man called Alf Brockman. Alf Brockman was the managing editor of City Magazines, which was part of the News of the World group, and uh, he rang me up one day out of the blue and said, how would I like to become editor of Angling Magazine? Because Ken Mansfield, the editor was going to retire. Well, it was like a bolt out of the blue for me. Big decision to make at my age, uh, recently married, got a young kid, but uh, I decided that I'd have a go. Uh, There was nothing that was going to stop me. So I turned up in Fleet Street and took over on Ken's retirement. Ken was very good, stayed for a month and sort of saw me into the job then went away and went fishing, I guess. While I was uh, editing angling, which was quite a task for a a young lad, because I was only in my sort of uh, late 20s, early 30s then, I I made a few mistakes. Uh, I remember the second edition came out late and I was dragged in front of the managing director, who was a lovely man, and told that it had cost about a thousand pounds because I hadn't met the deadline for the printer. (laughs) Never did it again. Anyway, I kept on with angling for a while, and City Magazines, as I say, were part of the News of the World group, wanted to develop angling into one of the top magazines in the country. So they bought the publishing rights of Creel. Now, 
Creel, I think, was launched by Bernard Venables in 1963. It was probably the first full-colour quality magazine, monthly magazine, in the UK. But unfortunately, uh, like many magazines in the past, including Angry, it eventually failed. It was losing circulation. I don't know why, probably because it was a little bit upmarket. So City Magazines bought it and it was merged into Angling. And uh, I met with some of the staff who'd been working with Creel, including the editor, and decided to keep some of the Creel people to join my regular writers. And among those were Reg Regrini and Clive Gammon, plus Mike Pritchard, who was an excellent photographer. Anyway, Keith Lintzel was uh, working for me at Angling as a freelance. It was wonderful drawings and paintings. And I think he'd done a few jobs for Creel. Strange enough, I still keep in touch with Keith and one or two other people who've uh, been my uh, writers for many, many years. I was pretty fussy, I suppose, in those days, and still am, about the people who I read and whom I can understand their sort of competency. Uh, I'm afraid there are and have been many, many people who have top names and huge reputations which are completely false. And I know this because I fished alongside them, I fish with them, and they can't do what they say they can do. Um, there have been a number of them. So anyway, I think the success of angling, if it was a success, and I, I still get letters and telephone calls from people who say it was probably one of the best magazines ever, I think it was because I was very fussy about whom I got to write for me, because I knew that these guys who did write knew what they were talking about because I'd fished with them, so I knew everything about them. In fact, as I say, many, many of them are still my friends. I think we had a, a common aim, uh, which was innovation as well as being entertaining. We met pretty regularly and talked fishing, you know, about coarse fishing, game fishing, saltwater. And my influence was getting round over heavy gear and a thickier approach, uh, generally encouraging more delicate and lighter gear, rods, lines, smaller reels, everything. In fact, trying to make all fishing, particularly sea fishing, a bit more sporting. Now this resulted in my request in the magazine one day, just as a, an idea. I said to readers and to the writers, why not invent a lead, a surf casting lead that we could hold out with, with a sort of light gear, but still be able to free it and reel it in without uh, the whole thing becoming anchored and breaking off a 15 pound line. And it was quite astonishing, the result of that. Several ideas came in. The first one was by Dennis Darkin, who lived down in Bromley. And I knew Dennis quite well. He'd written a few bits for me. And he produced a, a prototype, which basically was a four or five ounce bomb with a hole drilled through the nose down longitudinally with a tube in, inside it and the tube contained the anchor wires which was held to the eye of the lead with a piece of nylon if I remember rightly. Anyway, this worked pretty well. What you did, you cast it, the anchor wires were sufficiently there to hold the lead 
But once you gave a big heave, it broke away, the tube came out of the front, and you could drag the whole lot in without any impediment. That was number one. And then along came Ian Gillespie, and he produced the first of the so-called modern breakaway leads, in which the anchor wires were drilled through the front nose cone of the bomb and were swivelled and were held in place by elastic bands around the anchor wires, which had a bit of a kink in them. That worked extremely well. But then he improved it, I think, with the help of Nigel Forrest, and the next prototype came up with little beads that revolved on the wires and located in semicircular depressions in the lead. Again, an excellent job. Now, of course, we've got the modern equivalent, the real breakaway lead, which was invented by the Breakaway Tackle Company. I think Ian Gillespie and Nigel Forrest formed it. And this one has, of course, uh, plastic inserts with little slits into which the wires locate. And uh, it's probably been the saviour of thick-eared sea angling of the old days and turned it into a much lighter, much more sporting way of fishing. Lighter rods, thinner lines, everything. So that even in a strong tide or in big waves, a four or five ounce bomb would hold out because of the lack of drag of, a, say, a 12 or 15 pound reel line. So that was one big innovation that we came up with, and I think it was very important. But many of the people used to uh, chat over a pint of beer and come up with funny little ideas, some of them absolutely useless. But eventually, something came of most of these little chats. If my memory serves me well, John Rowland Bobcox did quite a bit of work for you at Angling and may even have written up some of the early trials of uptiding using these wired leads. I don't honestly remember that one. You may well be right. But uh, I used to fish with Bob and John out of um, uh, Essex. Yeah, they were great people and still are. You know, John, of course, goes and spends his winters in Florida as a game guide on a boat, and I think he's back here for the summers. But, uh, yeah, they're, they're great guys, always have been, great innovators. Perhaps it's worth pointing out that it was a very different era back then. Much less PC with regard to killing fish or conservation, I suppose in part because there were still lots of good fish about to be caught. Oh yeah, I mean in the 60s and 70s, the bags of cod caught by shore fishermen in Kent, parts of East Sussex and up on the East Anglian coast were quite phenomenal. It was nothing for me or my friends or anyone else for that matter who could cast a reasonable distance. To go to Dungeness or the beaches around there, Hythe and uh, Dengemarsh, Galloways, and even down as far as Eastbourne, and you could catch in one tide a hundred weight of cod, anything between six and twenty pounds plus. I remember several times uh, at Dengemarsh fishing with two or three friends and uh, we caught so many big cod on this light gear, you know, twelve and fifteen pound lines, we just couldn't carry them back to the cars. So we had to carry tackle on the back, two rods, a monopod and a sack of fish dragged behind us walk for a mile along the shingle to the car, and then go back for the second sack. You wouldn't do that now in a whole season. There's almost nothing to catch. So it's been a dreadful um, you know, lack of conservation by 
successive governments of two governments to do the necessary conservation measures. I mean, I used to fish with people like Les Moncrief, who taught me a lot about casting, and um, we used to catch not just cod in the winter, but you know, we, we caught tote to nearly 40 pounds off the beach. And when I tell people these days that we, well, I did regularly call turbot off the beach on little pouting. You could not do that now because the beaches have been swept clean by trawlers. And of course now we've got lots of uh, Eastern Europeans and foreign nationals fishing our beaches and they do not put anything back into the sea. Everything is killed and eaten. Dreadful. Something perhaps you kept in tackle on the back of this week's European election results. Well, I hope Nigel Farage does do something about it because nobody else has had the guts to do it. Can we now take a close look at some of the magazine's contributors? I've got a, a memory of, of all the people that I used to use regularly and I must say that with most of them I fished with them and knew their competency. This was very important to me. And I still see some of them and uh, keep in touch. For example, let's talk about the saltwater scene with Clive Gammon, who did a regular column. And there was Donovan Kelly, who helped to form Bass, which was the Bass Angler Sport Fishing Society, with Clive and myself and several others. <laughs> I can remember we had a, a meeting with the Ministry of, of uh, Ag and Fish, and we tried to get the existing 10-inch bass size limit up to 14 inches so that at that size at least they would have spawned once and not got killed and eaten. We were quite hopeful, we thought they'd listen to us, but eventually they came back with the answer that the French housewife needed 10-inch fish and therefore that's what they were going to get, so the 10 inches remain. Very disappointing. I know that bass is still going and still trying to do things, but there we are, it's one of those things. Then there was Ian Gillespie, of course, John Darling, who lived down near me, Dennis Darkin, great caster, Digger Darrington, the Aussie. Unfortunately, Digger died a few years ago, back in Australia, after he'd gone home. Then there was Bob Cox, Nigel Forrest, Terry Carroll, the great caster, who began with his own company, Ziplex, after uh, learning a bit about composites with uh, Carolyn McManus. And there was a guy called Eric Pace, and then a guy called John Jones, who was a, a Welshman who moved to Ireland and teamed up with Kevin Lenan and Des Brennan of the Inland Fisheries Trust. And then, of course, there was Dave Stewart, who's arguably the greatest all-round angler I've ever met, and the great caster John Holden, who's still very active. And then in course fishing, again, Dave Stewart. I mean, Dave was just exceptional on everything, really. And then Richard Walker, Peter Stone, Fred J. Taylor, Martin Gay was a goat pike man, Graham Marsden, Terry Eustace, Dave Burr. He did the match column, and he still holds a record for the heaviest bag in the All England competition. Andy Barker, who wrote a, um, a column on uh, specimen fishing. Rod Hutchinson, the carp man. Peter Wheat, Fred Buller, and one or two others, of course. And then in the game fishing, again, Dave Stewart, because he's, still, he's, he's such an all-rounder that it's quite incredible what he's achieved. And many others, like Bob Church, Reg Regini, Dave Collier, who did our fly-tying column, Brian Furzer, Tom Ivans, who I persuaded to come out of retirement after he'd written Stillwater Angling and uh, start to do articles for me. 
And then there was Arthur Cove. Uh, I think I was the first person to ghostwrite his views. And Cyril Inward also uh, did the same to ghostwrite for him. And then uh, there was Mike Weddle, who used to work for Hardy's and was a champion caster. Wonderful people. All competent. I hate the word expert, because I think it's much overused these days. I mean, who knows who's the best fly fisherman in the country? There might be one that's so much better than anyone who's ever written an article, but's never said a word in print, so it's silly to call people experts, or the best in the UK. There was one other person that I, I really think that we ought to mention, and that's a fellow called Doug Cooper, who's a very old friend of mine, lived locally, near Tunbridge Wells. He was a great all-rounder, but he was quite brilliant in innovation. He had his own lathe at home, and he used to actually make his own reels. And he used to make bass hooks out of uh, bicycle spokes, because he thought the others weren't good enough. Just characters like that, you know, you, you don't get them anymore, because all they do is write about fishing rather than about innovation and, and how to do things. I mean, there seems to me to be no wish now by most people to make their own rods or tie their own flies or do anything. It's all sort of just buy it and go, you know. And do we have any specific little anecdotes which you might want to share with us here? <laughs> uh, some that we could tell, others that we can't. I tell you what, there was one particular event which I still laugh about and still talk to other people about. You probably remember, a lot of people remember from Anglin, we used to do the Guinness competition and it ended up in September with the party being taken over on free holiday to Ireland. Bass fishing and, if they wanted to, boat fishing. And Doug Cooper used to come as an advisor and helper and uh, he was using these homemade hooks which were about a 5.0 or 6.0 but they had a bicycle spoke, stainless steel, properly tempered and hardened, and he thought they were the best hooks ever, even better than the old Mustad 79510, which we used to promote anyway, because it was an excellent hook. Anyway, we'd finished fishing on Stradbally Strand one day, and we were waiting for the bus to take us back to Dingle, and we got talking about these hooks, and there was a Welshman there, and he said he didn't think they were much good, because they weren't as good as the 79510 and other hooks. And the argument got so heated, it ended up with the two of them rolling around in the sand on the dunes, bashing each other to hell. <laughs> we had to break them apart. But, you know, people felt so strongly about things in those days that uh, that sort of thing happened. Quite funny. One observation I'd like to throw in is that when you read an article these days, it comes across as a set of instructions, whereas in the days of creel and angling, it painted a picture. And for the time it took to slowly read and digest what had been written, you felt you was actually fishing there with the writer. The modern stuff is too simplistic, and it's because uh, they want instant success. And uh, some of the editors, I regret to say, try to promote this instant success, but they haven't got the basic practical knowledge of the subject in hand. Some of them, in fact, can't even uh, write good English. It's really astonishing to me. One other thing today's anglers still cling on to as a major talking point from those times are some of those fabulous Irish bass fishing trips and, of course, the great Irish anglers who helped make them possible. Well, in those days, of course, back in the 60s and 70s again, uh, there were so many bass on the Irish strands that it was relatively easy fishing. I mean, it was not unusual for each person, if he could cast reasonably well and knew his stuff, 
you probably catch 20 bass in a tide. Not huge fish sometimes, you know, sort of averaging four or five pounds, the odd eight pounder, very rarely a double. You couldn't do that these days. It just doesn't happen. I've been back recently and uh, fished some of these strands I used to fish. There's almost nothing on them. It really is disgusting. And that is because of the past, not present. Because the Irish now have done better uh, for bass conservation than we have. We've done practically nothing, you know, our, our bass are hammered frequently because they're a commercially viable fish now, very much in demand. And in those days they weren't. In fact, I remember Clive Gammon writing an article trying to stop people eating bass uh, on the argument that they contained something which made men impotent. That didn't work either. <laughs> but uh, anyway, um, yeah, the Irish now, of course, have got bass conservation areas. They've got a closed season and a limit on the number of bass you can take away. So they've done extremely well. And that's basically due to Jez Brennan and Kevin Linan and the ministers at the time with the Inland Fisheries Trust. Uh, they tagged bass. They found out a lot of things about bass that no one knew before. Basically, they were slow growing and um, they didn't spawn until they were about five, six years old, uh, eight, a 14 inch fish and so on. And now, of course, uh, they've got consummation levers. We haven't. Or if we have, I mean, we're told that we have areas down on the south coast called bass nursery areas where they were, may well be. But there are people fishing for bass all the time and along the Cantonese Sussex coast where there are a lot of, or used to be a lot of very, very big bass. There's almost none now. Uh, you get the occasional fish. But in the summer and into the autumn too, the whole coast is alive with Dan boys, which, uh, you know, contain tramonets and God knows what. And you never see a conservation boat or anybody. They, it's just a free-for-all. It's really disgusting. But there's nothing that you or I could do about it. It's a question of government failing to do anything. And again, despite the fact that neither are any longer with us, Des and Kevin are still held in the highest of regard for the contributions they made to Irish sea angling. Yeah, well, of course, Des was the sort of the sea angling boss of the Inland Fisheries Trust, and Kevin was his assistant, and uh, they used to go around. I mean, I, I was invited over several times, as were other people like Clive Gammon. And uh, we used to go around the Irish coast testing for the fishing, and producing maps and information, bait beds, where to buy this, where to go, what time of the tide. And all this information was collated into information sheets which were given to anglers and published. So they did a huge amount of work to publicise Irish fishing. Not just bass fishing, lots of fishing. I remember going up with Kevin to Northern Ireland at the time of the Troubles and uh, Kevin was very nervous about taking me. The object of the trip was to try to promote sea trout fishing in the sea. And we visited some beautiful places. Didn't catch many sea trout, caught a lot of brown trout and a lot of other fish too. But I was told that I mustn't go out in the evenings to the pubs. So we used to sit into the hotel in the evenings and drink there. But it was a bit unnerving, but a wonderful trip anyway. Kevin used to look after me very well. Yeah. Brian Douglas and I once did a video with Kevin in the dinghy out from Phoenix, where we had a bottle nose ray of £140, but sadly, no longer with us. Unfortunately, lots of them are no longer with us. Just a few, like me, have uh, lasted a bit. <laughs> did you ever get to meet Shaw Poor Beagle Specialist Jack Shine over there on your travels? 
I didn't. Kevin used to talk about him a lot. And uh, no, I'd love to have met him, but I never did, unfortunately. Never got up that way to Clare. Talking about the bass fishing, we made a film for the Inland Fisheries Trust and the... Um, Lord Falter. Bad Falter, yeah. And uh, we made a film on bass fishing in the surf down in Dingle, fishing the sort of Brandon Bay beaches. And uh, it came out really well, I thought. I've only seen it a couple of times. I, I wish I'd got a copy, but I never have had one. I think there was me, Clive, Des and Kevin. And I think John Jones. Uh, John Jones was a Welsh guy who was bass mad and eventually ended up moving to Ireland. We used to run into him quite regularly over there. He did a lot of work to help the Inland Fisheries Trust surveys, and a superb bass fisherman too. But uh, not just the Brandon Bay beaches uh, around Dingle. I mean, we used to go to Inch. I'm told that Inch has come back a little bit, but nothing like in the old days. And then we used to travel further east, go along to Derrynan, and St Finian's Bay, and down towards Waterville, the, the beaches there were excellent, a place called Ream Row, on the mouth of the River Innie. I, I caught several good fish there, but it's all gone. I mean, the last winter storms have apparently completely changed the coastline of that part of Ireland, and where there were sort of sandy beaches and lovely surf beaches, the sand has been scoured away and uh, there are rocks and stones and boulders and God knows what. I probably wouldn't recognise it, I'm told. So far we've been concentrating on your writers and associates, but what about Brian Harris's contribution here? Tell us a bit about your story and history. <laughs> oh dear, oh dear. Well, I started fishing, I'm told, when I was about five years old. I came from a fishing family. My father was a mad keen fisherman, and three of my uncles on my mother's side were also mad keen and took me fishing. I started basically coarse fishing, and I got into uh, brook trout fishing, because that's all we had in the way of trout fishing in those days down in this part of the country. Little streams about six to eight feet across, and perhaps a yard deep, and we used to fish with minnows, drop minnows, and catch wild brownies. Lovely fish. And then things developed a bit, and a few of the reservoirs opened up, like Weirwood down near East Grinstead, Forest Road, and Darwell at Battle, the scene of King William and the, the arrow in the eye stuff. And I learned how to fish still water with a fly. It was a hard learning curve. I used to read Tom Ivan's book, Incidentally, I was asked to edit at the second edition for Tom, and I was glad to do that. Then later on, after learning a bit on the local reservoirs and some of the smaller fisheries, I started travelling, going up to Grafham and Rutland and Draycott. And then Buell Water opened down here, just literally a mile from where I live. Used to be a wonderful fishery, but uh, not regrettably now. And then, of course, there was uh, Roger Daltrey's uh, Lake Down Fishery over at a place called Burwash. Beautiful fishery now. Four lakes, about uh, 27 acres, and it's still going strong. Although Roger doesn't run it, he lets it out uh, to one of his former bailiffs, and it, it's still a super fishery. Still go there and very much enjoy it. We used to go to Abington to catch the monsters. And then uh, suddenly I became interested in salmon, basically because of Dave Stewart. Dave, of course, was a tackle dealer originally up in uh, Twickenham, and he was very keen on salmon fishing. He used to fish the Test and the Avon, 
and he said to me one day, um, what about coming down? So I went down to fish a little bait on the test, which he now owns, in fact, and lives on, and learned a lot from him. And then eventually, both of us uh, joined a syndicate down on the Hampshire Haven, fishing for these monster springers. And I learned an awful lot from Dave on how to spin deep and hold the bait, and also nefarious things like fishing shrimps and pawns. He was superb and still is. Then, having got the bug on salmon, I sort of moved around and learned how to fly fish for them. I fished the black water in Ireland, and still do, have not for the last couple of years, but I've, I've been there several times. Wonderful river for the summer fly, floating line. And a lot of the North Wales rivers, like the Duvar, where I had some good fishing, and the Conway, the Thurzo, had uh, six fish in a week on the Thurzo, which is a, a wonderful thing. I fished the Loon with Reg Regini quite a lot, and Arthur Oglesby. Then I got uh, interested in sea trout, mainly through Reg Regini. Went over to Ireland and fished the Loch Ran system, and the Upper Lakes, still do. I've also fished on the Tyvee and the Towie and the Dovey and the Spey and thoroughly enjoyed all my fishing. But mainly summer fly fishing with a small small fly floating line, that's what I really like. I did get uh, a bit fed up with the Avon fishing which was rather heavy handed and had to be because of the depth of water, the strong flows and we were often using leads of three ounces just to fish the bait down which was a, a floating Devon minnow on a, a, like a paternoster system which Dave popularised. So I've had quite a, a varied career in uh, in fishing, um, coarse fishing, game fishing and sea fishing of course. But uh, I've more or less given up the sea now. Uh, I still fish the uh, estuaries and uh, the tidal rivers for grey mullet which I love. And I'd still try to do a bit of bass fishing, but it's a bit of a, a waste of time, I'm afraid. And this turning of you back on sea fishing, was that down to the poor state of what's on offer now? I turned my back on sea fishing because I was so disappointed with results. Um, every day I went down there, you'd see the sea being raped by foreign trawlers and their own local trawlers too. Many of the time I've seen foreign boats literally 40 yards off the beach. I once actually put a tilly lamp out on a boat with a lead casting. They used to come so close. And uh, this was to, to rake up the, the soles and the, the dabs in the place. And then they used to set lines and catch the herrings and the sprats. And, you know, it was every day. It just could not go on. What finally brought about the downfall of Angling Magazine? Well, uh, <laughs> uh, it's like many other things that have happened, uh, probably down to uh, Rupert Murdoch, the Australian. As I say, Angling was um, owned by City Magazines, which was part of the News of the World group. And it was a family-run business in those days by the Carr family, a lovely family. Old-fashioned gentlemen, in fact. And uh, things were going quite well at City Magazines, and then Murdoch took over and obviously wanted to get shot of the magazine group, of which I was an employee. He sent over a hatchet man who was so unpleasant, his job would seem to have been to make all the editors leave because of his unpleasantness, so they didn't have to pay them redundancy money. Several did leave, but I stayed on. I had a big row with him one day. Anyway, I stuck it out, and then eventually... 
Warner Brothers bought Angling, and that was quite good. I was working in Water Street then for a couple of years, and then David Kay, who was, um, he ran a thing called Kay Cards, Christmas cards and all sorts of things, birthday cards. He took it on, and he was fine too. A Jewish man, but very fair, and uh, he gave me free reign, and we did quite well. But I think the specialised magazines began to blossom, and an all-round magazine had to share its readership, and I think that was probably the cause of angling's sort of slow slide down the circulation tables. Anyway, while I was still with David Kay, um, Jeff Chesterman, who was a advertisement manager, and oh, I had an idea that a new magazine, plush paper and full colour, might go well. So we vented a magazine called International Fly Fisher, in which I was the managing editor and Jeff was in charge of the advertising as directors. David Kay financed it and it, it started off very well. And then we just didn't have the money. You need an awful lot of cash to finance the launch of a magazine. And it, it went well for about a year. And then we just did not have the cash. And uh, I wasn't going to put the house into the into the, the mix, as it were, and risk that. And so eventually it started to go downhill. Angling was then sold and the office was moved to Maidenhead. And I didn't fancy travelling all the way down there from my home in Kent, so I packed it in. And Jeff and I continued to run uh, International Fly Fisher, which David Coe very kindly gave us as a parting gift. But, as I say, we didn't have the finance to keep it going, and eventually we sold it to a rogue Australian, who I think ran it for two issues, ruined it, and it died a death. So that was the history of International Fly Fisher, and the history with me of Angling Magazine. I think Angling went on for about another couple of years. I think Sandy Leventon, who ended up editing Trout and Salmon, did it for a while, I think for about a year. But, uh, yeah, like many things, it just failed. One of the top things, of course, in uh, International Fly Fisher was my interview with the Prince Charles, which I gather was the envy of a lot of the uh, national daily columnists who couldn't get an interview with him in his own private suite at uh, Buckingham Palace. But uh, I managed to do so by writing to his private secretary and uh, knowing that he was such a keen fly fisherman, he eventually decided that he would allow me to interview him, which we did and took photographs. In fact, I'm still looking at a photograph of me sitting on his uh, couch talking to him with a box of flies, which I and Dave Colley had tied for him. He loved his salmon fishing, of course, and he fished the day at Balmoral quite a lot. Where did journalism take you after Angling Magazine and International Fly Fisher? Well, I, I've written a few books, I think five or six. Probably the best one I've ever done was the Guinness Guide to Saltwater Angling, which went into two editions. That was a, a beautiful book in full colour. Quite enjoyed doing that. Then Guinness again asked me to do a sort of a revise of a French book, which came out as the Guinness Guide to Fresh Water Angling. I did rewrite it from the French. Um, it was originally the work of a fellow called Paul Boyer, or Boyer, but it never really worked. I, I was never happy with it. Then I wrote one or two books, including Stillwater Trout and The Art of Fly Fishing, 
and I also did a, initially a little booklet called Fishing the Angler's Guide. That was when I was with angling, because while I was editing angling, I was also the angling correspondent of the News of the World, so I was writing a weekly column for them as well. When I left angling, I, I went back to the Kent and Sussex Courier, where I was employed as a sports editor, and I sort of worked out my time there until I retired at the age of 65. But I did restart the uh, the old fishing column in the Courier and kept that going until I packed it in. And it was going even after I, I retired. But then they decided that uh, with the uh, financial restrictions, they couldn't afford to pay contributors. So uh, they stopped all contributed matter, and that included the fishing column. There are other things, of course. I have written quite a lot. My interest these days is mainly in force fishing and game fishing, and particularly fly fishing. So uh, I used to write quite a lot for the uh, trout fishermen until I got fed up with the number of mistakes that uh, occurred in my stuff. I just gave it up. I also did quite a lot for trout and salmon and uh, quite enjoyed that. These days I write regularly for fly fishing and fly tying which is a very responsible monthly magazine. I don't know whether you know it. Mark Bowler. Mark Bowler, yeah. Mark is a very knowledgeable person, very similar in his attitude to me, in that if he doesn't do it himself or doesn't know about it, he'll find out. So he really does know his stuff. So I enjoy writing for him, and I think it is possibly the best of our fly fishing or trout fishing magazines these days. Which is a nice convenient point at which to bring this review of your angling career to a temporary close. I think we've pretty much covered all the historical content, particularly on the sea angling side of things. In the next instalment I'd like to bring things a little more up to date when, for the reasons already given, you've turned your back on what's left of sea angling and taken to concentrating your efforts on both migratory and stillwater game fishing. So for now, a very big thank you to Brian Harris, who after a brief pause will be back.